Welcome to Saltier Politics this week. Right now I'm sitting in Julie's house with some delicious smelling food. Yes, I'm making short rib tagliatelle pasta and I've been cooking it for about an hour and a half and I've got another hour and a half to go. And I also baked you because I know how much you love cake. I baked you a chocolate ganache cake. It's a chocolate bomb. Right now, I'm, I just passed it with my eyes. It's incredible. I'm not having any, but um, you... <laughs> Don't worry. You I devoured every other cake I've had, so I'm sending you home with half this cake at least, hopefully more of it. It's making me the opposite of salty. But, Julie, what is making me salty this week is that Senate Intel Committee report, the 1,000-page report on the campaign interference by Russia... You know what's interesting about this? This is a Republican-led Senate committee in that it's a bipartisan report, but Richard Burr, the former chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee. So this is not a quote-unquote democratic hoax, as the president would have us believe. And what it basically outlined are a bunch of really troubling things that, again, if this were any other administration, this would be like Iran-Contra and Watergate all in one, but because we have repeated scandal after scandal. I think people have just become immune to this particular scandal, scandal du jour. But what it basically says is that, of course, the FBI and the Mueller report, um, or the Justice Department, were right to open up an investigation into the Trump campaign because there were a bunch of really troubling signs. Paul Manafort, the campaign manager back in 2016 for, for a period of time, had very weird and close relationships with Konstantin Klimek, who's uh, a Russian asset, basically a member of Russian intelligence, somebody very close to Vladimir Putin. Oleg Deripaska, who was kind of his Russian connection slash, I think loaned him a ton of money, is an oligarch very close to Putin. Fundamentally, all sorts of really weird and bizarre behavior that raise a lot of red flags. Of course, people are right to be able to want to look into this. Don't forget that Donald Trump started getting security briefings partially as um, as a candidate, but certainly was once he became president-elect, started getting real security briefings and intelligence briefings. So I think he wanted to make sure that there were no untoward signs. I think, Emily, if I'm not mistaken, there are also there's also testimony from former friends of Trump that said that when he was in Russia, he hooked up with Miss Moscow or Miss Russia or some some beauty pageant woman. Um, it, it, it presents just mountains of evidence. Like yeah. one of the other ones is Paul Manafort or we got Manafort. Um, Trump did talk to Roger Stone about outreach to WikiLeaks. Yeah. Stone wanted the Podesta emails to balance out the news cycle of the Access Hollywood tape. They actually shared Jill Stein's polling info with Russia to help build up Jill Stein's numbers during this. It's it's it, and then he did commit perjury, Trump, um, in, because he lied to Mueller. Well, and they also think that Jared Kushner lied to Mueller. They think that Eric Trump lied to Mueller or, or Donald Jr. I forgot which of the Trump kids or Jared. I mean, this is a, just a mountain. This I is, don't even this know. Is, I mean, <laughs> what I just cannot believe. And so, of course, fundamentally, the top line here is there is no Russia hoax. No, it was real. This is real. And this no collusion, no collusion. He could repeat it all he wants. There was plenty of collusion. Do you think they're going to do what they did with Jill Stein's numbers, potentially with Kanye's? Well, first of all, I don't even know if Kanye's running. I, I don't know how real this Kanye boomlet is. Um, I don't know that he's filed. In, he or I guess like a third party that could get votes away. Yeah, I mean, they're going to try. Listen, the other troubling thing here is, of course, they're, they're saying that Russia continues to interfere in our elections on behalf of Donald Trump. It's problematic. I mean, it's it's a huge issue and it should bother everybody. I don't care if you're a supporter of Trump's or not. The fact that a foreign power is actively interfering in our elections and more importantly, did actively collaborate with senior members of the Trump campaign is highly troubling. You know, I'm going to I'll tell you, I when I was in graduate school, um, I tried to get a job with the CIA. So then I said, okay, I want to be an analyst for the CIA. And so I, I never really got very far with them or even interviewed with them. But um, but I spoke to a professor on campus who had worked there, I can't remember. And I said, what does it take to be an analyst of the CIA? Because I had a graduate degree in, in, in post-Russian economics. Like this was my sphere of interest. 
and so I thought, okay, I could be an analyst, you know, one of the, either the Foreign Service or, or the State Department or the CIA. He said to me, well, you know, um, if you do drugs, they basically don't want to have, they don't want anybody that they have anything on. He said, you know, if you have a drug habit or had a drug, basically if you have any secrets in your life, they don't want you because you could be compromised, right? And so he said, and more importantly, he said, look, you have a lot of family who's still in Russia. They will never put you in Russia if you're a foreign service, if you work in the foreign service or certainly the CIA, because there are too many people that they can hurt that might affect your behavior, right? Um, I don't know how true this is. I don't know whether he knew what he was talking about, but it stands to reason that if you're a compromised person, um, they don't want you having intelligence information. Right. Well, Paul, I mean, give me a break. Are you kidding me? I don't get it. Like, this like is so president, obvious. But, but let's forget some 20-something two-year-old wanting to be a junior, junior, junior entry-level person at either the State Department or, the, or, or, you know, the CIA. Talk about the fact that the president of the United States, according to testimony from friends of his, might have had an affair while married to Marla Maples with... Miss Moscow, I think the weird sexual proclivity stuff came up again. I didn't really get into that. And obviously had stuff on him that at the time the Russians could have used and probably did use because that's how the Russians operate, right? They see somebody who's prominent. Trump was a very prominent celebrity in the New York market at the time um, because of his divorce from Ivana Trump. Um, He was a developer. He was somebody who was well known. And he could be an asset to them, which is what which is what they do, right? They identify somebody as an asset and they put them in their pocket for potentially future use. We still don't know what they have on him. What I always believed they had on him is not any golden shower weirdness. It's the fact that, as, to, to use Donald Trump Jr.'s own words, or Eric Trump, I forget which of the Trump kids said this, Russia cost, Russians constitute a, a pretty sizable or large cross-section of our business interests. And it's true. If you look at who buys apartments in Trump Tower, Trump has this development in Florida that is apparently all Russian owned. Um, a lot of Russians live there. He is financially dependent a lot on the goodwill of Russia and of Russians. And who knows who's been, we don't know his taxes, we don't know his finances, we don't know who's been propping him up. We have no clue. I think this is very scary. And also the fact that a lot of these uh, GOP senators, Corn and Cotton and Rubio, are trying to lessen the blow of what the report says is also really disheartening because they ju- the report says it all. But now when they're speaking to the public and the media, they're kind of lessening, trying to lessen the blow in you some know, way. I, I go back to this. I go back to the fact that they legitimately are the most unpatriotic people I can possibly imagine. I mean, I put myself in their shoes. I really want Donald Trump to lose. And I forget that. I really, 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 really want Joe Biden to win. But if I found out that Joe Biden was colluding with Russia, right, that would be the end of beef with Joe Biden. It just would be. And I feel like that would be also a legitimate way to make an argument of why you as a Republican are not supporting the Republican nominee because he is committing treason against the U.S. But they're scared of the base, right? They're scared of not him. They're scared of their own elections. Marco Rubio wants to run for president either in four years or in eight years. I get where they're coming from, except for one thing. You swore an oath to uphold the Constitution, not your own career. And, you know, I've worked with politicians and I think the biggest downfall of every politician, every single one from dog catcher to president, is that they can't envision life when they're not in politics. To me, there are worse things than losing your job. I mean, (laughs) I should know. (laughs) There are worse things in life than standing up for the right thing to do, right? You can keep your mouth shut and be complicit and keep your job. Or you can do the right thing and hope that the voters will reward you. And chances are they might not. I mean, legitimately, they might not. They might not because they saw what happened to Jeff Flake. They saw what happened to other Republican senators who stood up to Trump or stood up, quote unquote, because Jeff Flake was as weak as could be. And yet, nevertheless, still um, was able to basically 
get thrown, not thrown out of the Senate, but run out of town on a rail and didn't run again. So, uh, you know, it's interesting to me that there is no life that Marco Rubio can imagine or John Cornyn can imagine that is more important for whatever reason than what they're doing now. And they can't fathom that this is the very soul of the country that they're talking about. Right. And interestingly enough, they're all on stage with rising coronavirus rates and people dying. So it's obviously that it's obvious that they don't put people first. They put their careers first. Right. No, they put their careers first. And I think that's the problem. I think the problem is that it's just a disaster from start to finish. And I don't understand for the life of me what is so important about being a United States senator. It's just not. It's just not. I mean, I'm not naive to it. I, I, I devoted my life to politics. But there are better things you can do. And you think about the obituaries of people who supported Nixon during Watergate, their obituaries didn't read well. Now they're dead, maybe they don't care, but they also lost, right? Right, and it's like the whole idea though of being in the Senate, don't you wanna leave this legacy and at least have integrity? Or is it just about the power now? It's the now. I mean, they spent years investigating Benghazi. And yet, here's a, and, and by the way, no report ever found any wrongdoing. No. By Hillary Clinton. That's, you know, let's, let's not bury the lead. 1,000 pages is finding wrongdoing here for Trump. 1,000 pages of wrongdoing for Trump, for Kushner, for Bob Barr, who, of course, got right in on the whole Russia hoax and said, this, this is a hoax, this is a hoax. And yet, not a peep. I mean, imagine if this were a Democrat. They'd be going crazy and the part that kills me is if this were a democrat i'd be going crazy what is what do you think is happening in putin's head right now as this report comes out i think is he just laughing he's laughing and he's saying i gotta double down on trump which he is which this report also says he's laughing he's doubling down on trump and he is fundamentally saying this might work again i mean if donald trump wins a re-election after all of this, this will tell Vladimir Putin that it's open season, that the mightiest country in the world has effectively looked at his interference, looked at what he's done, looked at his clear bribery of senior ranking campaign officials, potentially the president of the United States. We don't know because that's an open question in this report and concluded that we just don't care. So go to town, Vladimir Putin. I mean, seriously, go to town. Agreed. And and you know what? I also I had a thought that I think do you think the Democrats, it would benefit them to kind of call this Senate Intel Committee report, the Rubio report or the Cotton report or to frame it that way? No, I think what would benefit the Democrats is and I, I have said this before and I fear it tremendously. I think Joe Biden's a traditionalist and I think Joe Biden is a forgiving man. And I think Joe Biden's a good Christian, for lack of a better description, in the sense that I think he's a turn the other cheek kind of I think I think he's not an Old Testament kind of guy. <laughs> he's not an eye for an eye kind of guy. Um, and so I think I, I fear that he will say our long national nightmare is over. Basically pull a, a Jerry Ford, right? Except the Democratic version. Our long national nightmare is over. Um, the voters have spoken. They have punished Donald Trump by by having him lose the election. And now we need to move on as a nation, we need to move forward. Now, there will be no consequences for anybody based on this report. And that's wrong. That's wrong. Because what happened after Iran-Contra, uh, obviously you don't remember because I don't think you were born, but what happened after Iran-Contra was Casper Weinberger um, and all these other people who were complicit got pardoned by George Bush. And uh, and that's a template for other things right. that now have led us to this. And it just goes to show that, I mean, John Mitchell, the Nixon attorney general, went to jail. I mean, went to prison. Like, that's when there were consequences for things. The president didn't suffer consequences, but Bob Haldeman, um, Ehrlichman, I mean, his inner circle all served time. They did, and they were disgraced. And I think that says something. I think that means something. I think people need to serve time. I'm sorry. They truly compromise the security and integrity of this nation. 
And I think I think Trump's inner circle is emboldened because they're just it can't happen to us. I think there's I think that's absolutely right. I think you're, if you're Jared Kushner, you're saying uh, even if even if I lose, nobody's prosecuting me. It's going to look like retaliation. It's going to look like you know you're going after the winners. You're going after the losers. From the same crowd, by the way, that screams locker up about Hillary Clinton. Still screams locker up. Still screams locker up. But in this case, I mean, it's the projection is incredible. It's incredible. And it's not just them. It's a right-wing media echo chamber that amplifies it. It is a... Which, which then proceeds to inflict upon people who only watch certain networks or listen to certain talk radio talk show hosts, that this is all a hoax. And so if you hook them up to a lot of Tucker tests, they'd be like, what are you talking about? This is a democratic hoax. Well, read the damn report. That's it. Just read the facts that Republicans wrote. It's a Republican-led committee. Read the report. Read it. And it's not that the entire world is against Donald Trump. It's not that the entire world is conspiring to get Donald Trump. The entire world did not conspire to get George Bush. It's not, it's not like this paranoia about some vast left-wing conspiracy of, of Democrats and the left-wing, you know, mainstream media and, you know, the, the, the ivory tower, pointy head, Ivy League university professor. Like, it doesn't exist. No, and actually what was interesting about watching, you know, the DNC was seeing Biden's blue collar background and appealing to that kind of population. And Trump doesn't have that anymore. What I thought was interesting with the DNC, the first two nights, which is the only thing that we saw because we were recording this on a Wednesday, is the notion that people are just, the, the theme that it seems to me the thematic is, there's two thematics here, but the main thematic is we just want to go back to normal. Mm -hmm. it's like it's like it's almost like a therapy session for people who are like oh my god like you feel it too like like, yeah like (laughs) oh my god it's like a group therapy session wait we want we want to go back to normal right when they were going to each uh state for the nomination uh in in americans from every like wyoming yeah i thought it was really well done i love that uh three states did not do that or really delaware which which i will give as a pass because I think they wanted Biden wanted the governor and the senator there to nominate him because mm-hmm. that's where he comes from. So I'm going to give Delaware a pass. Uh, governor Lynch of New, of New Hampshire. Um, I thought that was kind of crazy. Like he should have Irish white guy should have let maybe somebody else from New Hampshire talk. Correct. And governor Murphy of New Jersey. Um, that was weird. That was, yeah. I think he should have also probably had some first responders or somebody else do it. Governor Cuomo in New York did not speak. He had, you know, healthcare first responders, I, I believe. A black but, woman was front and center. Yeah, black woman was front and center. Exactly right. And I thought it was great. I thought it was great in terms of diversity. The other thing that I thought was interesting is, and obviously I'm not privy to any polling, but it seems to me like they are desperate from Michelle Obama's speech to everything else that I saw subsequent to that, they understand the key to this election. And Kamala Harris is, we talked about this last week, her nomination, I think, underscores what I'm about to say, which is they obviously understand that they need African-Americans to come out and they especially need African-American women to come out. And this fallacy last time around of the white uh, working class voter bailing on Hillary and voting for Trump and these are Obama voters who voted for Obama and then, and then voted for Trump and we need to you know talk to the white working class. The reason Hillary Clinton lost in those states is because African Americans did not come out in the numbers that they had for Obama. Had she gotten the share of the African American vote that Barack Obama did, she would have won Michigan. Right. She would have won Pennsylvania. I mean, you know, so on and so forth. And so I think they understand that. Well, I think they understand that. Obviously, I'm not revealing anything that their pollsters don't know. Um, but I, but if you look at what they were trying to convey in the last two nights, I thought it was that. I thought it was, oh my God, we just have to get back to normal. I don't care. And and having Kasich and having Christy Whitman and having Colin Powell and these these Republicans speak was kind of a, a cry for that. 
we don't even care anymore about partisan politics. We just want to go back to normal. We want to fight over normal issues, but we want to have a reality-based fight. Exactly. Right? You can have a fight about whether abortion is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. You can have a fight about whether taxes are too high or too low for corporations. Those are all fine. I mean, those fights are all fine to have. Those are all ideological fights that are fine to have. But we're living in a bizarre world. We're not fighting over policy now. We're fighting over reality. We're not living in a reality-based world right now. And I think that was the whole notion of having these Republicans speak and having just, just, just the theme that ran through this was... This is not normal. No. That, in that we're all just, we're not, and it was nice to hear Republicans too being, they're unsettled too. People who are just living in this world and have everyday problems, we want to solve them. We want to work together and we want to move forward. But we can't if we're not in reality. If we're arguing about stupid things, we're not going to get anywhere. But I mean, think about that. Think about the election in 2012, right? It was partially about Obamacare. Um, it was partially about Mitt Romney's record of being capital. But we were arguing over healthcare policy. We're arguing over tax policy. We're arguing over employment. We're arguing over foreign policy and whether Obama's foreign policy was right. Um, whether Russia was a threat. Whether Russia was a threat, right? Uh, those are all substantive things to argue about, but we're arguing about things that take place on planet Earth. We have a president that changes the weather map. We have a president who legitimately... Who doesn't believe in masks. Who doesn't believe in masks. Who thinks that Michelle Obama screwed up because she had recorded this last week, so therefore she gave the wrong coronavirus numbers. Okay. Deaths, yep. Which, by the way... She gave him less deaths. She, right, she, she did him a solid. Yeah, like 20,000 less deaths on your hand, buddy. Like, take it. I mean, we're not dealing with a normal human being. He's no. mentally ill. I think that was basically the first two nights of this convention. And then Michelle Obama was just unleashed in a way that I'm so glad that she was. I think she's gotten to the point where she's said she, she, she's just living her truth. She's like, a lot of people don't want to hear this from me because I'm a black woman. I mean, what a thing to say. What a wonderful thing to say. Absolutely. I mean, this woman has been contained. She and her husband have been contained their entire lives because, and then good old Brit Hume, oh, she looked angry. Okay. Everything the Obamas have tried not to be. They've tried not to look like the angry black people, right? Her documentary on Netflix, she pretty much was like, I had to be so careful every move I made because I knew that that would be a defining moment. Exactly right. And now she, and by the way, she has every right to be angry. Absolutely. Are you kidding me? Every black person in this country, forget black person, every person in this country has a right to be angry about what's going on right now. Mm -hmm. You have a president who's so entitled that he's angry every day over the biggest nonsense on the planet. I mean, the crap that he's angry about is just insane. And yet he has a right to be angry every day throw temper tantrums, call people names, act like a... I would say a snowflake, but... Act like a snowflake's not even the word. I mean, snowflakes actually don't melt for, <laughs> for a few seconds before they hit the ground. But in his case, you know, before the snow even forms, he melts. But literally, it has the kind of meltdown. I'm trying to remember how old my son was when he stopped having those kinds of meltdowns. I truly don't recall him having those kinds of meltdowns. I guess when he started speaking and being a sentient human being, um, uh, certainly... Not by the time he got to preschool, I don't think he was having those kinds of meltdowns. He just wasn't. You have a, a president who's having the kind of meltdowns that toddlers have, which might be an insult to toddlers having had one. But, and then somehow people are saying that she, he said, he, Donald Trump, is saying that she's angry. Are you joking? Right. A woman who did everything by the book, got into Princeton, got into Harvard Law School. Oh, it's because of affirmative action. Could it be it's because she's smart? Right. <laughs> I mean, is it possible? Well, that's, that's a thing. And it's like, how can Trump even speak? Because how did also he get into Penn? 
He got into Penn because someone took his SATs for him. And somebody got him into Penn. Right. And he has a shit ton of money so they could pay his way in. I mean, uh, I'm like, stop. Michelle Robinson from the south side of Chicago, whose family didn't have two pennies to rub together. I mean, no. I'm just, that's just not the way it works. I'm sorry. Right. It's not the way it works. And it's, it's, I mean, all of it is just so infuriating to me and then this woman who's 56 or 57 years old after all these years of being contained and listen i grew up in princeton and i hung around the princeton campus a lot my first boyfriend actually went to princeton so i spent a lot of time at princeton and i can tell you back when i was hanging out there in the late 80s early 90s not a friendly campus to anybody who's not a rich white kid. As Ted Cruz, I think, would probably attest. That tracks. And uh, she was there a decade earlier. So she was there in the early 80s, I guess. And I'm sure it was even tougher back then. I mean, I just know the town of Princeton. And I it's, it's, it's they call it, it's interesting. They call it the most Southern of the Ivies, even though it's not, Penn is more Southern. But it is a very, or at least it was when I lived there, a very classist, elitist place. And I'm not just talking about Princeton University. I'm talking about the town of Princeton, which is very much enmeshed with the university. I can't imagine what it was like being there in the early 80s as a girl from the south side of Chicago. She must have been furious. And she never talked about Princeton for a reason. I think she had a really bad experience there. And... What's interesting about that is she had every right to be angry that you had all these elite legacy white kids there who got there because, you know, dad and grandpa belonged to some eating club in Princeton, which is what they call fraternities in Princeton. They're not fraternities, they're eating clubs. Um, And she, Michelle Obama, got there based on her smarts. And yet people are saying she got there because, I mean, this is this is 57 years of pent up anger this woman has. And yet she's she she's class all the way. She's inspirational. She is a role model. She is a beacon, not just to African-American girls, but to so many other girls. She hates politics. And I don't blame her for why she hates politics. She didn't sign up for this nonsense. Her husband, I mean, frankly, he's lucky she didn't leave him when he decided to run for state senate. Um, but or for Congress, which is, I think, what he ran for um, the first time around and he lost. So... She had to watch her two daughters be mocked. She had to watch her husband be mocked and subjected to to awfulness. And she suddenly, she looks angry simply because she said that Donald Trump is not fit for the office. Right? And meanwhile, this this, this toddler, this child, it's not even a child, this, this, this infant who throws a temper tantrum anytime somebody doesn't praise him to the stars is saying that somebody else, of course, a black woman's angry. Meanwhile, Joe Biden, who I thought gave a very good speech as well, not as good as Michelle Obama's, but a very good speech nonetheless. Suddenly she she's not angry. You know why? Because she's not a black woman. Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, to quote Donald Trump, it is what it is. It's f- <laughs> and also, I just need to say that just the representation of women at this DNC has been really wonderful to watch. I didn't realize also that Jill Biden was a teacher for the entire time she was, her husband was serving as vice president. Yeah. I did not know that. And I'm like, only. Oh, no, no. And I think she said she's going to continue to teach at a community college. Only a woman can juggle that like responsibility as well. So no question about it. And what I think is really great about it. So you have to understand, like, I, I don't, I mean, I've been in the same room as, as, as President Obama. I've been in the same room as President Clinton, but I, with fundraisers and political events. Joe Biden, I've done, as you know, a lot of political work in New Jersey. Joe Biden, when he was in the Senate, was almost considered New Jersey's third senator because he was just, Delaware is obviously next to New Jersey. He was up all the time for events and so, and calls and, and just, I spent, and plus when I worked in the Senate, not as much as I did when I worked in politics, you know, political campaigns. But I, I've been around Joe Biden a lot. What you see is what you get, and he is truly 
that guy. And he is, his, forget his personal story, I think he was the kind of guy who, you know, was a glad-handing sort of Irish politician, which is, is <laughs> I know a lot of them, they're all, you know, very good at it. Um, but then he had this tragedy that happened to him with his wife and his daughter. And one of both of his sons, I think, were in bad shape as well. I think one of them almost, I forgot whether it was Hunter or Bo, but one of them almost didn't survive that accident as well. When he got elected, but before he took office. So here's the highlight of this guy's life. I think he's 29 years old. He's not even old enough to serve in the Senate when he gets elected. I think he turned 30 right before the inauguration, or his swearing in, excuse me. And he has this horrible tragedy. And suddenly you have to go from being a senator where you don't really have time for your family, I mean, honestly, to, to having to care for them. And then Jill Biden shows up, I, I don't know, at some point, um, and becomes, as she said, a mother at the age of 26, 27 to these two boys who've been scarred insanely with their mother dying and their sister dying, um, to a, a man who's obviously grieving and then flash forward 40 years later, his son died. I mean, that, I, I don't know how I go on after the first time. Mm-hmm. After the second time, I think you almost contemplate suicide. Like, I don't, I don't know. The grief, I, I, it's unimaginable. It's unimaginable. It's unimaginable. And say what you will, I don't care if you agree with his politics or you don't agree with his politics. I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. He is truly, and I, and I say this as somebody who's been spent a lot of time around Joe Biden. He is a profoundly decent man. Profoundly decent in ways that I don't know that I could say about most politicians. Like, I have no idea whether in private Barack Obama is a profoundly decent man. I've never been around him enough to know. Can't say that about Bill Clinton. Can't say that about... You know, um, and I, I can say that about most politicians or not say that about most politicians I work with, right? He is a profoundly decent man. Um, and to, I think the one of the things that you saw in, this, in, in the first two nights of this convention is a lot of people attesting to that. And the person that I think should burn in hell, um, maybe that's an exaggeration, I don't really also believe in hell, but um, except of our own making. But the person who I think has a lot to answer for is Lindsey Graham. Oh, yeah. And because I, he knows. He knows what kind of man Joe Biden is. He has attested to his humanity. And now suddenly he's going crazy on Joe Biden. Shame on him. Look at his supposed, Lindsey Graham's supposed best friend, John McCain. Who's his wife supporting and coming out for and oh. lauding? Not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that says a lot. It says a lot. It says a lot. And it says a lot to me about Lindsey Graham, the kind of person he is. You know, of all the Republicans that I want to lose this year, aside from Trump, I really want Lindsey Graham to lose. Because I really think that there needs to be consequences for selling your soul. He mm-hmm. knows better. See, he's not a Marco Rubio striver who I think just wants to be somebody. Lindsey Graham knows better. Lindsey Graham was a hawk when it came to Russia. Lindsey Graham was a hawk. When it came to ethics, Lindsey Graham prosecuted when he went old enough to remember this, was one of the main prosecutors in the House of Putin's impeachment because of, you know, moral failings and perjury. And um, because he lied under oath. And here's Lindsey Graham defending every, I mean, there's nothing. When Donald Trump talks about if I shot somebody at Fifth Avenue, my base would still support me. That's Lindsey Graham. And unlike Trump's base, which I think just buys it, Lindsey Graham knows better. He's making a calculated decision, and that's what kills me because he's smarter than that. He's smarter the people than who that. make the calculated decisions, who know what they're doing, piss. Just I, I, I don't. So Jamie Harrison, who's running against him, who actually spoke, um, represented South Carolina the roll call yesterday. Um, I believe he's either still the current or maybe the former chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party. Um, I mean, I, God, I want that guy to win. That I agree. And but I have to just give, for Marco Rubio, I I 
I can't stand him, especially after the Parkland shooting when he was somewhat for gun reform and now it's just completely a forgotten thing. And being a senator from a state that has had Pulse shooting and then Parkland. How about these how, tragedies? I, I don't have time. How I don't nice have was time. to see Fred Guttenberg, by the way, yesterday? That was amazing. Who, by, for people who don't know, is the father of one of the girls. Jamie. Jamie, Jamie. Um, who died in Parkland in Florida um, and has really been very active and very vocal on gun issues. By the way, the NRA <laughs> seems like it's unraveling and. Um, I couldn't be happier about that, but um, it's it's somebody. I had a reporter from the Hill uh, call me. The Hill newspaper, not Capitol Hill, call me last week, and he said to me, "It seems like everybody always says this is the most important election of our lifetime." but do you think this is really the most important election of our lifetime? And I said, well, I say that every year, every four years. But this time I really feel it because I don't know that we can come back from four years more of this. Agreed. It, it's it's palpable almost. It's it, There's an urgency that I haven't felt before. I felt a hope with Obama when I first voted. And then I felt an excitement with Hillary because I was excited to see the first women, woman in office. But... Now I feel an absolute urgency. I think that's the best way to describe it. So by the way, you know, I have this column every week um, in the Star-Ledger, which is a newspaper in New Jersey. It's really, it's not a column so much as it is a, a back and forth with uh, Mike Jaheim, who we had on the podcast, who's my Republican counterpart. Um, and it's like a little crossfire. It's called Friendly Fire because we actually get along. But um, <laughs> I said in the column, and I actually heard from people, people actually went to the trouble of finding my email and emailing me because I said with Kamala Harris, I was so excited that we finally had somebody from generation X. And as I said, sort of jokingly, it's about time the baby boomers get off the stage. Um, And I got all this pushback from people who are like, I'm a baby boomer and how dare you generalize this. And the baby boomers have screwed things up long enough time to like, you know, have generation X come and clean it up. And people got, Great, like people went nuts. <laughs> Started writing letters to the editor, and they emailed me. Went somehow found found my email, <laughs> um, and so I responded as I try to do to all rational emails. I mean, if you're polite, I'll respond. If you're crazy, I will not. Um, but I found it really interesting because I thought about this. The first you because you just said the first president you voted for was Barack Obama, right? The first president I voted for I was 19 and was Bill Clinton in 1992 who was a baby boomer. I was 19. I'm now 47. I'm still voting for a baby boomer this year. <laughs> I'm tired. Get off the stage. Biden's going to be, what, 80 or 81 on his fourth year if he gets elected. That's And Trump's going to be 78 or 79. Yeah. Know? So they're, it's just... Ugh. Yep. Just go. Just I go. Can... Well, to kind of switch gears, but I I wanted to bring a different subject up with you because I thought you'd have an interesting point of view having been portrayed in a movie before. Um, so Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the one yes. with Quentin Tarantino directed with yes. Brad Pitt and Leo. Anyway, there was a portrayal of Bruce Lee and Quentin Tarantino kind of doubled down that he was going to portray Bruce Lee in a way that was arrogant and, you know, very self-entitled. And he argued that his portrayal of Bruce Lee was accurate because he had talked to people he, who worked with him in Hollywood, who incidentally happened to be mostly white men, um, who said he was in fact arrogant, whereas Quentin Tarantino did not talk to Bruce Lee's family or anybody who was close to him. And China was mad and so was Bruce Lee's family with this portrayal of, of him in the movie. And anyway, I thought... I had two thoughts on this. First thought, I think it is valuable to reevaluate some people who we laud as heroes because, I mean, that's what we're doing now and this is the day and age to do it. However, picking apart the, the racial stuff that goes into it, again, being an Asian, when Bruce Lee was famous, they were seen as less than, they weren't seen as powerful, they weren't seen as, you know, 
to be able to stand up. So he he probably stood his own and that intimidated a lot of white men who Quentin Tarantino talked to, therefore he is that. I just wanted to get your opinion on this because I heard this conversation happen on a Whitney Cummings podcast and I wanted to hear from you, again, who has been portrayed. Well, unfortunately I'm bound by an NDA so I can't <laughs> tell you how accurate or inaccurate the portrayal of me. My interpretation of you is it was highly inaccurate. Okay. I can say that. Um, <laughs> You can, you can say that. I can't say anything. Um, I was also portrayed for about two seconds. So uh, I don't know about that. But um, all I will tell you is having known people. So why don't I use Gretchen Carlson as an example, right? Um, uh, who I know very well, who was portrayed in, in two different movies. Um, it seems to me that the narrative of the movie, whatever the narrative that they want to build is, is uh, sort of more relevant. And, and the reality is his place in service of, or not, or, or fiction is placed in service of the narrative of the movie. So if the movie makers decided that Bruce Lee needed to be the villain here, it doesn't really matter whether he was or he wasn't in real life. Um, they just decided to, that that's what they decided that he was That's the whole, yeah, that's what annoyed me because I think, I think Tarantino wanted to make Bruce Lee the villain to make Brad Pitt's character who has a fight with him in the movie and they, Brad Pitt's character does well against Bruce Lee. In this fight, they essentially tie. I think to your point, that's exactly what Tarantino wanted to do. Yeah, it's, so. It's like, don't say you're, don't say you're portraying him correctly though. So, uh, you know, I'm going to say the most controversial thing I've ever said in my life. I hate Quentin Tarantino movies. I hated Pulp Fiction. I hated Reservoir Dogs. I have refused to see any others because I just don't like them. So I did not see this one. And I know I'm going to get a ton of hate mail on that, but I, I truly hate Quentin Tarantino. I don't know much about his movies other than if the point was to make Brad Pitt's character a really great 1970s or whatever this took place in 1960s, 1970s, I guess it took place in 69, right? During the yep. Manson killing. Yep. Um, if the point was to make him this like Kung Fu ninja warrior, then of course Bruce Lee is the guy he fights because that was the big guy back then. And uh, of course, if Brad Pitt's guy is the good guy, then you got to have the bad guy. That's got to be Bruce Lee. And it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. So that's the narrative. And what I find fascinating is how often that happens, right? So in Bombshell, for example, which was the movie where I was portrayed for a hot minute, but um, Gretchen Carlson was portrayed for longer. Uh, and I have to be careful about what I say, because again, I'm, I'm bound by an NDA, but the Gretchen Carlson that I knew at Fox and I know today was not like that character. Her, I mean, you worked. Yep. With her. She was not. She was not that character, no. right? Like I, I wrote on her two p.m. show. Yeah, she was, was just not. not just that's just not how she was. It was inaccurate. Yeah, um, and so I would say that if that's the case, there. But it had to be that, you know, she was portrayed a certain way. And, um, you know, Megan Kelly was portrayed a certain way. And uh, I was portrayed in a way that I, I can't comment on, uh, <laughs> which is very strange, by the way, yeah. that everybody else can comment on my portrayal except the person. I know I can, I can comment on what I think about you. Like, I, you I, well, that's, that's the whole pernicious aspect of this, right? Like, I lived this, mm -hmm. and I can't tell you whether any of those scenes, I think I was in one or two scenes or three scenes, whatever it was, actually took place. Like, I, I can't say anything at all, which is crazy. Yes. And I can't say whether... I can tell you being in the writers, where all the writers were having written downstairs uh, in the basement portrayal, that talent very rarely ever came down to that basement. Just let's put that out there. Okay. Uh, well, you can say that. I, I certainly can't. Yeah. But um, uh, I also hate the word talent, by the way. Can we talk about that? That we were all referred to as talent? Like, yes. we were no more or less talent than the writers or the producers or anybody else. So I don't know why they always refer to the on-air people as talent, but be that as it may. Just... 
I just have to get that off. You know what? That's making me salty. That's made me salty from the minute I, I was quote unquote talent. Um, there is nothing more talented about what we do than what the hair and makeup people do or the producers do or the writers do or, you know, um, the executives do. But anyway, um, so I, it's just, I think to your point, was it a racist portrayal of Bruce Lee? I, I don't know. I think it was probably more like, maybe, I mean, maybe. I think it was a privilege. But I think it was a, I think it was a, hey, who's the best Kung Fu fighter around? We need to make sure Brad Pitt can, you know, can hold his own. I'm, I'm totally guessing here. I haven't seen no, you're, you're pretty much right. Yeah. Um, we have to make sure he holds his own. So if he can hold his own, then Bruce Lee is um, the guy to fight. And uh, as I recall, Tarantino movies from Kill Bill, which I slept through. I what? Saw. Okay, that was the one Tarantino movie, Kill no. Bill 1 and 2. See, I think Beatrix okay. Kiddo. Here's the thing. Awesome. Somebody took me to see Pulp Fiction in 1994 at the Nickelodeon Theater on a Boston University campus. And... I was like, what is this nightmare? <laughs> then um, somebody, I think I saw Reservoir Dogs in high school and I was like, this is... Uh, what I, is this nightmare? What is this nightmare? <laughs> and then my friend Nair and I were in London where she was living, I think in like 97 or 90, I forgot, sometime in the 90s. And she dragged, she's a big Tarantino fan. She dragged me to see Kill Bill and luckily I was jet lagged so I slept through it. But for the brief moments that I was awake, all I remember is Uma Thurman getting into weirdo fights and I was like what is this nightmare and I went back to sleep so I'm not a big Tarantino fan but if that's the goal of of, of if that's the goal then of course Bruce Lee's got to be the bad guy because I, as I recall from all those movies there were the good guys and the bad guys there were no mm-hmm. shades of gray in Tarantino movies right not no and, and it doesn't it doesn't give you like a one line kind of throwaway line being like you know, maybe a white guy saying something like, oh, like saying something about an Asian guy. And then you're like, okay, maybe I know why he is, he is arrogant or is, has to stand up for himself like this. They didn't give that even as well. So it was just very black and white. He was an arrogant asshole. Did you see that movie? Uh Uh-huh. I saw it on a plane. Was it good? No, I was bored. Okay. I was tired. Yeah. <laughs> you were jet lagged. I was, I was jet lagged. <laughs> like every time. And I'm like, movie. what is this nightmare? Yeah. I'm sorry. I finally found somebody else who hates Tarantino. Um, or maybe doesn't hate him the way I do. I truly actively dislike Quentin Tarantino movies. I just I really I did like Kill Bill. I, I thought Uma Thurman was great. Uh no. My whole thing with Uma Thurman again was oh I don't know. I slept through it, so I shouldn't <laughs> comment. Like I'm gonna sleep through this nightmare. I'm gonna see I see I'm gonna sleep through this nightmare. It was in Leicester Square in London. I remember where I saw them. I remember everything about that movie except the actual movie. I remember seeing it in Leicester Square in London. And it was like nineteen ninety seven or ninety eight whenever it came out. And I still was like, What is this nightmare? So <laughs> Astro is not not particularly interested. In summation, what is this nightmare? Yes. All right, Julie. So what is making you salty this week? I just told you yes. the talent thing. Talent. Actually, it's not making me salty this week. You just brought it up. The word talent is applied to on-air people makes me salty. I don't like it. How about you just call them people who are on air? Right. The talent makes it sound like they are, have some sort of secret talent that other people don't have. And you've worked with enough of us to know there's no secret talent. <laughs> there is with you, Julie. Well, I appreciate that. But anyway... Well, what is making me salty this week is when, to certain people, when you talk about Black Lives Matter, they bring up Black-on-Black violence. And my initial reaction is to say, shut up, asshole. But I, I just, then I bring up the only violence is really, I think, that the white people in power who have kept Black people for so long from the schooling, housing, land ownership, banking, and jobs Talking about black on black violence when you talk about Black Lives Matter is not is not the point. It's that they have been kept down for so long that sometimes the only the only outlet is a violent livelihood, but they are not inherently violent or deserve less because of that. And I just that argument that black on black crime is a big thing pisses me off. Well, it's also systemic racism. Right? right. And you have to talk about the systemic part of that. I mean, I think about... Because you've probably gotten that argument. 
oh, I've gotten that argument all the time, but think about how you and I grew up. Mm-hmm. Well, Ashley grew up in the project, so I'm a bad example. But think about how you grew up. Mm-hmm. There was, I mean, and, and me too, by the way. I mean, I went to private school. I was on scholarship. But the point is, like, I grew up poor, but my parents were, I mean, we grew up poor because we were immigrants. But, like, my parents were highly educated. They sent me to private schools um, on scholarship, but they spent every last dime they could to do that. And uh, it was an intact family. And if I had questions about math or science, my father was right there to help me with them. Um, and there was no question I was going to go to college. And there was no question that they were going to talk whatever they needed to send me to college. And the same with you, right? I mean, yep. you grew up in a highly educated family. And, and my son is growing up in a family that, that you know, he's going to college. There's no, there's no question. And right. not just that, but if he has issues with math or reading or writing whatever he's got issues with he'll have a tutor right exactly mom will sit with him and have the luxury of sitting with him and by the way when he was being homeschooled or remote learning the last you know back in the spring i had the luxury of staying home with him and making sure that he was doing everything he could and when he couldn't read stuff well i would sit there and help him and when he couldn't you know one of his assignments was which is insane for second grade, but you know, here are Newton's three laws of physics. Now do, do an experiment. I had the luxury of sitting here and, and Googling what the hell Newton's three laws of physics were. <laughs> oh, yes, I will learn these yes. too. <laughs> and, I, and we learned them together because it's been a long time since high school. I have to learn them, even though I don't remember second grade being a place to learn them. But um, and we did this experiment together. But the point is he's got the luxury of having, uh, you know, caregivers, and tutors and, and nannies and um, that's just not the case. And in fact, you know, you look at statistics for remote learning, a lot of these kids don't have access to the internet. Right. They don't have access to school. I mean, some of them just left school when there was no school to go to and they couldn't access this education because they didn't have a, a MacBook Pro. Because the system right was now. not built for them. Right. And so when I hear like black on black violence, think about generationally why that is. Yep. I mean, generationally, and we always talk about, oh, the poor white working class and, you know, we got to help them. Yeah, we do. No question about it. But what about the black working class? Right. Who have no leg up. No leg up. No leg up. So anyway, we can get into it, and we and we have yeah know, the horrible so, pernicious effects of systemic racism. So that's what's making me salty, but I'm really excited to end things on a sweet note and eat your food. <laughs> yes, which by the way is almost ready, so I gotta go. I gotta go finish my short rib tagliatelle for you. Awesome. All right. Bye.